Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Would you please take up your Bibles? Let's hear from the living God through his words. And turn to Exodus chapter 8. That's page 50. Or if you've got one of the blue large print, it's page 60. We're up to plague 4 of the 10 plagues. We'll be reading 820 to 9 verse 12. Let's listen to God's words to us. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians should be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. And Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and Pharaoh did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow 
the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It should become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Amen. Please take up your Bibles again, and turn back to Exodus chapter 8. Now, as I said before, in the second of set of three plagues uh, this evening. If you remember last week, we're thinking uh, about the way God's plagues unveiled the gods of the world. And tonight, it's all about distinctions, uh, the way God makes a distinction between some people and others. Now, I think we live in a world with a bit of a bit of a love-hate relationship with distinctions. We, we hate some kinds and we love others. Uh, we don't like people being treated differently because of things like class or, or race, and that's good. But then we'll kind of immediately gravitate away from rangers or Man U supporters and towards our own kinds. You know, we, we can't help but make distinctions. And they're not always bad. Uh, actually, they help us do life. You know, I, I have a responsibility to my kids that I don't have to all the kids at their school. You know, they're mine, and those, thankfully, are not. And in, in God's economy, in one way, there's, there's absolutely no distinction between anyone. You know, we are all made by God, made in his image, equal, equal in value and dignity. And yet, actually, once sin enters the world, God does begin to make a big distinction that we see here in these three plagues. And it might shock us, but God really wants us to see it one that is good and right, one that makes all the difference and has sent shockwaves through the world. And here in Exodus 8, he wants us to see it, and he wants us to see it because he wants us to know something truly wonderful about him and his rule. So to get into this text, we're going to let it ask two questions of us. And the first one is this, can you see God's distinction? Can you see God's distinction? Now, you may have picked up on it in the text as it was read. This distinction between his people and the rest, we see in each of the three plagues. 8 verse 22, if you have a look. God has promised flies to come on Egypt, and then he says, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth." Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. So then again in 9 verse 4, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. 
And then again in 9 verse 11, and the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Now, it doesn't say explicitly that Israel didn't get them, but given that Moses can stand and the magicians can't, we assume God has kept the boils away from Israel three times. Three times a clear distinction between Israel and the rest. Now, first we might wonder, well, what's this distinction about? What's it based upon? Why them? Well, it's important to say it's not based on anything like the way people looked or what they did in their spare time. It wasn't because of their language, and it certainly wasn't because of godliness. Israel hadn't earned this. The last time we'd actually heard anything of Israel was back in chapter 6, and that was that they weren't listening to Moses. A lot like Pharaoh, these, these guys, they didn't deserve any distinction. As Paul says later, all fall short of God's glory. So it must go much deeper than that. And it's been running throughout all Exodus. And it's found in the end of 8 verse 20. Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. My people. God has a people, a group that belong to him. If you remember right back in Genesis, God had made a promise, a public oath, a covenant that he would bless Abraham, give him a nation. He's bound himself to a group of people, like marrying someone. A husband is bound to his wife and she to him. And similarly, uh, God has said, this group, this people is for me. And here they are. Here's the nation. And like a wife, they, they belong to him. They're loved by him, cared for by him, rescued and protected by him. Why? Because he promised. He made that binding covenant because he wanted to. And this covenant of grace, and it is gracious, isn't it? People are part of it only, only through Jesus Christ. It's only through faith in him. It's in him we become one of God's people, one of his children. We're saved by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's all in him. He's done it all. And in the Old Testament, they had faith by looking forward to a savior. And we now know him because he's come. So what's the distinction It's God's people united to Jesus by faith. It's the church on one side and the rest of the world on the other. Oh, you know, that's that's quite a big thing to say in our society, isn't it? Perhaps it's a bit arrogant and tolerant. God chooses some but not others. That's what our society thinks, don't they? And that's perhaps what you think. But it's not arrogant because it's, It's not based in the person chosen. It's just by God's sovereign choice, by his extraordinary kindness that he saves anyone. I suppose it's it's as intolerant as any marriage, I suppose. God, through his own will and design, has decided to place his great love on this certain group of people, on his church, in Christ, not because we're beautiful, Not because we're deserving, it's not earned, it's not pushed for, it's all by grace. And what's wonderful is you can move from the world to the church. The invitation is there for all to trust in his son. It's a a group with open doors. But that's the distinction God makes. And in answer to the question, can you see God's distinction? Well, in one sense, it's invisible, isn't it? You can't see my heart, my faith, my union with Christ. Only God sees it. 
In another sense, you could say it's visible because there are public markers. You know, in the Old Testament, they saw it by circumcision and then being part of the nation of Israel and keeping the law. And in the New, this distinction is, is still made public by our two sacraments, those who are trusting in Christ and their children are, are baptized and receive the Lord's Supper. But that's not what God is showing us here. He's not getting us to look at those kind of markers. He wants us to see that this distinction is real in our experience. You know, it's like the difference between having a VIP entry card to an exclusive club and then the experience of actually using it, of walking down that red carpet, of being ushered into a beautiful lounge with free drinks. And for Israel, they didn't just have the card. They experienced the difference. And it was firstly a distinction in daily mercy. It's a distinction in daily mercy. Just imagine that plague of flies, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but flies for me are pretty annoying. You've probably been trying to work one day, and in the, the piece, there's just the buzzing noise, and it zzzz, and then it stops. And it goes on again, zzz, you know, and you just want to find it, you want to get rid of it, and then it goes for the window, and, zzz, zzz, and it just keeps going for the window, and that's just one of them. You know, then perhaps, I don't know if you've experienced in a hotter place, you might have experienced a few more flies, perhaps the, the smell of your f- food, and you, you keep kind of swatting them off. But more than that, and it gets really bad, doesn't it? 10, 20, we just like, get them away from me. Now, for some of you, you know this experience acutely with really tiny, filthy insects called midges, okay? Um, that they, they itch, they bite. They get under midge nets, they find their way down your neck and onto your ankles, and they drive you insane. Well, that's just a hint of this swarm of flies. And there probably weren't midges, but possibly biting big horse flies. Thousands and thousands of them everywhere. Outside, inside, in the kitchen, the bathroom, the bedroom. Imagine the noise. Imagine the feel on your skin trying to walk or sleep or eat. It would just drive you crazy. But then walk down the road with me to Goshen, where the Israelites lived. Suddenly there's peace. People are walking around calmly, going about their usual business of making bricks. No one's shouting at things you can't see. No one's hopping about because they've been bitten. It's just peaceful. Right there and then, God's people are experiencing a daily mercy. Rather than experiencing the judgment of God like the Egyptians, they were spared. They didn't experience the flies. None of their livestock were killed. None of them came out in boils, and later none of them were affected by the hail or the darkness. There was a division, a distinction. But to get this, we need to see that this was a mercy in the context of a really tough life. Israel, they're still in slavery. They're still making bricks, if you remember, without even being given the straw. They're even doing that while yet not experiencing the flies. You know, and all of them have since died since these plagues. This, this mercy didn't mean suddenly all of life's troubles disappeared. But even in the midst of that difficulty, they were spared even more. And that's true for God's people throughout the ages. God makes a distinction in daily mercies, all because God's people are sheltered by the cross of Jesus. 
The one we're united to spares us. Now, similarly, we live in the context of life's difficulties, don't we? We get ill. We struggle at work. We face bereavement and sin and eventually die. And for some of us, those difficulties might seem at the moment the only thing we can see. My life just feels the same as everyone else's. But God wants us to see, even in the context of hardship, our experience is different. First, we might be spared from just even more ordinary life problems, things we're not even aware of. Perhaps if you've been living in the middle of Goshen on that day of flies, you, you wouldn't have seen the mercy you're receiving. You'd have just thought life was normal. And for us, it can be similar. God has been kind to us, but we've missed it. His providence has steered away certain disasters away from us without knowing. You might spot it as you look back on your life, a disaster avoided, a disease missed, but you might not. But second, we're not just spared from ordinary life problems, but also from spiritual problems. God has turned our hearts from worshiping false gods and idols to worshiping the true and living God. So we, the church, we get to know and enjoy God as our Father, adopted into his family. We, we know we're saved. We know we're justified by grace. We know the gentle love of Christ, our brother, by his spirit. We know forgiveness and assurance and hope. We know peace and honor. So we're spared, spared of the lies of idolatry. We're spared the self-obsession, the demanding sacrifices, the burden of trying to earn love. We're spared the crushing weight of guilt, the exhausting yoke of shame, freed from the slavery of sin. They are such sweet daily mercies. Now, that's not to say we experience them perfectly. Of course, we don't. Our sin gets in the way. But even in a small way, what a difference to life being with Christ. And also, not just the spiritual problems, but we can also be spared social problems. Christ is sanctifying us, his church, by his spirit, which means he's slowly helping us be more and more like him. So we might be spared... I don't know, from ruining a a friendship with a sharp tongue or the loss of a friendship by being quick to say sorry, sparing us from the full effect of sin in our lives. Perhaps you know that, perhaps you thank the Lord regularly for mistakes you've just avoided in the nick of time. And he also gives us a family. He gives us to one another, the church around us, sparing us from isolation and separation Again, we we still live in a world of hardship and sanctification is slow, so we make mistakes and things go wrong. But, But what wonderful daily mercies if we've got eyes to see them. He showers them upon us day after day, whether we recognize it or not, warming sunbeams of his goodness to us here today. Being with Christ really makes a difference. Can you see God's distinction and perhaps you're, you're not a Christian here this evening. And actually, you know you've started to see some of this. That's why you're here tonight. Perhaps it was the kindness of a friend, the peace they had during a bad time in their life, a joy they seemed to exude, and that sparked your interest. Is there something to this Christian thing? Why? Because you started to see a distinction 
And it's not just an extinction, uh, extinction, distinction and experience of daily mercies. It's also a distinction in, a, in eternity. In eternity, here in Exodus, being rescued from these plagues is not the end goal. We know that's not what Exodus is about. It doesn't end here with the people just thankful they're not experiencing boils and flies. Now, 8 verse 20. Let's go back there again. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. Why? That they may serve me. That's where it's all uh, heading. Israel out of Egypt. We know the story. To go and live with God in the promised land. And it's a full salvation. Did you notice Pharaoh trying to get them just to stay in Egypt? Uh, 8 verse 25. Go to sacrifice to your God within the land. No, they need to go home. Actually, then later in chapter 10, Pharaoh tells Moses that just the men can go, but no, it's got to be the whole family going. Then Pharaoh says, I'll keep the livestock, but again, no, they're all off to worship God in sacrifice. This is a full rescue, a total salvation of God's people. So this distinction in chapters 8 and 9 is is pointing uh, beyond itself to a more final distinction. Those who live and know God in the promised land, sitting on the banks of the Jordan, drinking milk and eating honey against those who stay in Egypt, left there. And this points us further, doesn't it, to those who are on that ultimate day will be around God's throne. What a day that will be. The church worshipping him in the new creation, experiencing the warmth of his love, the, the loving touch of tears wiped away, of singing with the saints and death never to be feared again against those who faced his punishment in hell. Being with Jesus really makes a difference. A glorious, joyful, everlasting, infinite difference. It's one we have glimpses of now in our daily mercies and one we will fully experience in the future. It's not something to be proud of or boast in like we did it. Like, aren't we great and amazing? No. We sing and we sing and we sing great everlasting thanks for our Savior, don't we? We boast in him and him alone. Can you see the distinction And don't these distinctions just rebuke our our jealousy of others? I don't know, perhaps you see those who aren't Christians getting to live a life you wished you could live. Well, may we remember God's wonderful blessing to his people. But God has a a purpose in showing us this. It's of great comfort and uh, excitement and joy, yes. But here in Exodus 8... It's actually pointing us to something else. It's so we know something about our gods. So if our first question was, can you see God's distinction? Our second question is this. Do you know God's domain? Do you know God's domain? This distinction is showing us something about his rule. Let's read from 8 verse 22 again. Moses is telling Pharaoh what God says, verse 22, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell. Now why? That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. God wants to show Pharaoh more of what he's like. As we saw last week and we'll see again next week, he's he's definitely revealing his power as the true God in judgment. It's plain for all to see. Pharaoh's people and their gods and magicians are, are feeling the full force of God himself. But here the Lord is showing Pharaoh that he isn't just a God kind of throwing curses and punishments from afar. 
He's not like a, a distant enemy kind of lobbing rockets and missiles from the other side of the world or the cosmos. No, Pharaoh is seeing the distinction in God's mercy. Pharaoh is seeing God actually rescuing his people, putting a shelter over them. He is their refuge and their strength, even while they're still in Egypt. It's a bit like Pharaoh seeing God build this giant air raid shelter over uh, the land of Goshen. You know, imagine Pharaoh standing at his palace. He's surveying the land of Egypt, and he, he sees his people kind of open to the skies. But where his slaves live, it's as if there's this huge, strong pieces of kind of impenetrable metal resting on giant, thick walls of steel-reinforced concrete. And someone else has built them. Some other god is at work. Perhaps just picture it in our present-day warfare. You know, it's one thing for the UK to send missile strikes, let's say, on on the Houthis in Yemen from afar. But imagine Houthi leaders seeing British citizens in their land finding shelter from those strikes. Imagine defenses appearing around their houses. Imagine them being supplied with guns and weapons. At that point, you know the British aren't just over there. They're also right here in our land. God is showing mercy to people. And to do that, well, that means God must be in the land of Egypt. Verse 22, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. In the midst of it, right here. And if in the midst of the earth, then certainly in the midst of Egypt itself. This is what this distinction is showing us. You know, as Pharaoh saw the river turn to blood, and it kind of affected everyone, he might have just thought, well, it's, it's my gods that could have done this for some reason even though it's clearly timed by Aaron, but you can see the logic. And that's the same for us. As we see bad things happen to everyone, Christian or not, it might seem like it doesn't really prove anything about God. You know, if sickness or, or losing your job or even death happens to everyone, then it could be God, sure, but it could just be the blind forces of nature. But if you start to see a distinction of mercy, well, now we're seeing something different. He's showing us he is right there in the midst of the earth. He's at work. He's present. It doesn't matter where you might be. The one true God is in the midst of it. All of the earth is his domain. It's his. There is no territory out of his reach, no place that he's left behind. And we've seen it time and time again. God's church can grow anywhere. He can bring salvation into any territory on earth. Just think of the way the church consolidated and grew in China under the Cultural Revolution or the current growth of the church in Iran under the watchful gaze of the Ayatollah. Do you know God's domain, even here in Scotland? Sometimes it can feel like society's powers are winning. The church seems to be in decline. Laws loom loom on the horizon that might make it harder to follow the Bible. But if you can see the distinctions God is making with his church, then may we know even here is God's domain. Even Aberdeen, he's not a local God. He's the God of the universe. He's in our midst. And what that means is this. God is not just for the end of the journey, but he's also here on the way. As we we look forward to that final day when we'll see God face to face, we can also know him now. 
We can also experience his love now. We know he's leading us along paths, paths via green pastures and valleys in the shadow of death, but he is with us. You know, when life feels like the powers of Egypt are pressing in, may we know God's domain. He is here in our midst. He's not left us. He's come to rescue. It's a bit like the SAS in our midst, taking us from enemy territory all the way home. And so he's worth trusting with everything. If you're not a Christian here this evening, perhaps... Perhaps as you've thought about this distinction between Christians and you, may that help you realize God is not just a, a, you know, a God for us, for Christians, for those who think you know, they might need a crutch or a helping hand. No, he is God of all and for all. And that includes you. Do you know God's domain? It's here. And just to finish, these truths of God's distinction and his domain, will they force us to respond? Are we going to go all in with this God? Now, Pharaoh wouldn't. Pharaoh, he's still got the message, hasn't got the message, has he? His response is a bit like that Burger King slogan, you know, I want God my way, my way. When life gets tough, when the flies appear, or like last time with the frogs covered the, the land, what did he do? Verse 28, so Pharaoh said, I'll let you go to sacrifice the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. He gives in. He kind of admits something is wrong and gets someone else to pray, but God's not for him. It's like an acknowledgement of God, but it's not real trust in him. And you can tell it's not real, because once the flies have gone, verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. He wants God on his terms, God my way. And so when life's fine, well, there's no need for God. So he just boxes him up, puts him away in the loft for when he needs him. He hasn't understood. God's distinction is real. God is not a local God. The whole earth is his domain. Is that your temptation. You know you're interested in God when life is hard, but in the summer, I know when the sun is on your back and your paycheck is in your bank, and God's forgotten, he's left by the wayside. So you find yourself on the wrong side of his distinction. But Moses is different, isn't he, to Pharaoh? For Moses, there's no compromise here. Because I don't know if you notice, Pharaoh offers a little moment that could have felt tempting for Moses. Rather than the tough kind of fight it out he knew he had to, Pharaoh, had to have with Pharaoh, verse 25, Pharaoh offers Moses the opportunity just to worship in Egypt. And it must have been tempting. Surely we can just compromise on this, can't we? It just makes things easier. Yes, God has said we'd worship him at the mountain. Yes, he's said he's promised a beautiful land for us, but Just worshipping here like this in Egypt, oh, that's a lot easier. But Moses holds firm. He knows if I'm to worship God, then I'm going to worship God his way. His way or not at all. This was a whole life of commitment to God. This was faith. For Moses, he knew God is our saving, powerful, true and real God. The God who blesses his people. And so we entrust ourselves fully to him. Why mess about in Egypt when I could be with God forever in paradise? 
And again, perhaps that's a challenge for those of us who know we're living in two camps. During the week, we're living for the now. We're living for me, for my gain. And then on Sunday, we're here for God's. And it's kind of a double life. We may begin to see the truths of Exodus 8 and 9 that they point us to. God makes a wonderful, gracious, loving, eternal distinction. Being with Jesus is really worth it. And that shows us the whole earth is his domain. He's here, even in enemy territory. And so he's the one to give our rule to every day, the God to trust. May we stop leading double lives. May we make a call and join the Lord God. 8 verse 22, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Amen.